we're sending money out of Syracuse and not just for 30 years, for the rest of their life. But when you are told that there's a promise that your generation will be better than the previous generation, and we're seeing that the statistics tells us that that's not the case, it's evidently clear that it only is going to change if we are going to be the ones who fight for our future. So we want to put in context because it's not just a class issue, it's a race issue. We're telling black and brown people and poor people, you don't matter. Welcome to Afro Futures. This is Yusuf Abdul Qadir, and I am here with the amazing, amazing Kimberly Latrice Jones. Kimberly, if you don't know her, is an African American novelist, director, human rights activist, and change agent within the literary world and the Black Lives Matter movement. She is a New York Times bestseller, popularly known for having co authored I'm Not Dying with You Tonight, and for the viral video of how in the uprisings around George Floyd and the protests that, that have kind of gone global at this point, one of the many people that have gone viral. And really, I think what we hope this conversation to be today is to get a sense of who Kimberly is, what her work is, and, and really help to unpack the specific ways that these issues implicate black girls and black women. And I want to be clear to say that we have experienced a number of traumas in the last several years. We, as the verdict to the Chauvin trial uh, was coming out to us, we learned of a black girl who was, again, killed by police. And it deeply, deeply, deeply troubles me with the kinds of conversations that we're having about really justifying her killing and, and, and trying to make an amendment to a rule uh, to justify that killing. So we're going to unpack those issues and then we're going to talk about like where do we go from here. But Kimberly, I am super, super, super excited to speak with you and to get to connect with you. And, you know, I just I want to begin by saying, you know, we, we have connected over the last several months based off of our shared activism and kind of viral work. And so if you want to just talk a little bit about uh, how how you got into this work and, and just what, what, what has propelled you from your young activism, because for those who don't know, you were also an activist as a young person. Yes. And then from there to Ferguson uh, and Baltimore and, and the most recent iterations of, of last summer. It all started, I think, just because of the energy, if you will, in my household. My mother was not an activist um, in the traditional sense, but she definitely was in her own way. And she always gave me lessons about taking care of people, taking care of the community, um, being involved in the community. My mother had this amazing Friday night event she did for most of my middle school and high school years um, called Rap Session. It was basically an in-person version of... Um, Oh my God, I can't think of that show that used to be on BET with Ananda Lewis, Teen Summit. Yeah, um, yeah it was like Teen Summit. Um, but in our neighborhood, my mother would host these events um, called Rap Session where she would <clears throat> allow teenagers from all over the city um, to come into the rec center of our church. And we talk about everything. We talk about, you know, sex and sexual identity and 
gang violence and like all these things that were plaguing our communities in Chicago. And she would bring in experts and she would have pizza. And it became this thing where at one point, you know, she'd have on average a hundred kids who would be giving up their Friday night um, because they wanted to be there to come to do rap session, to basically have community therapy, if you will. Mm. And so growing up around a woman um, who engaged the community in that way, it just kind of like gets on you through osmosis. Mm. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, like the first time I went viral, if you will, the version of viral back then in the eighties is um, my mom was in DC at work and I was, older sister who's six years older than I am who was a teenager at the time um I think I was maybe about nine so my sister had to be maybe about 15 um and she was keeping an eye on me while my mom was doing work stuff and a news crew stopped and you know wanted to interview my sister because they wanted a young person's perspective um on the war we were in with President Reagan and my sister is very shy and she clammed up and i nine-year-old me grabbed the microphone and was like I have plenty of to say mm. and I kind of like told President Reagan how I really felt about how he was handling the war and the country and the war on drugs and all of that and my mother was getting phone calls from all over the country being like um did you see your baby on national news young <laughs> and so that's kind of been my journey ever since I after that I started when I was about 11 um, taking my allowance every Saturday morning um, and going to gather all of the homeless people um, downtown Chicago in this certain section um, and taking them to breakfast. I did it every Saturday with my allowance from the time I was about 11 until 15. And so I just think it was my journey. <laughs> it was just what I was supposed to be doing. I don't recall a time when it was not what I was doing. So it's just at this point, it kind of just is. It's, it's funny because it's first the experiences that you had growing up in your home, right? The, the, the work that your mother did in the community that, you know, resonates with me because my mom, everyone who knows her is like, she's like everyone's mother, right? She, this kind of motherly taking care of community, this sense of like bigger than self uh, relationship that kind of gets you to feel in many respects connected and committed to more and multiple people in multiple communities that then bleeds into like a self-actualization that says like, no, I do have thoughts and ideas and things that I ought to articulate. And especially like in response to Reagan, right? Like there's so many, you know, we, 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 and this word is so overused, but this sense of this racial reckoning that we want to kind of pretend like didn't happen during Reagan's time or like didn't happen, like, you know, since we came to this continent, but this idea of, the way that Reagan politics, um, whether economics or tough on crime, posturing, war on drugs, mentality, you know, Iran-Contra, I mean, you, you name it, this whole last 40 plus years of Reagan ideology kind of being the backbone of Republican political operation, in many respects also Democratic politics, has really had an impact on black communities in very devastating ways. So it's it's kind of it makes perfect sense as a young person if you're thinking about, you know, what what are the things that are affecting your life. It, it makes sense to think about and for that launch point to be Reagan. And, and in many respects, for me, my earliest memories are my first grade teacher, Doris Berman. I cannot forget this woman's name. Asking my class, 
you know, who should she vote for, right? Like, that was my first real political awakening. Like, should she support George Bush or should she support Bill Clinton? I'm kind of dating myself in this context. But, you know, that was her question to the class. And it was apparent to me as I kind of began to go home and ask questions to my family that, like, you know, I'm, I'm a child, so I don't have as, as much of a nuanced perspective as I do now. But there was a difference and in, in the type of thinking. And as I got older, in high school, I remember in 2000, watching the electoral results and, and seeing the end of the, the, the controversy that was the George Bush-Al Gore race, remembering the kind of lynching that happened, this public lynching of a black man in Texas where George Bush was governor and was, you know, had a noose around his neck and was dragged by, by a pickup truck. And I'm like, this guy's going to be president? Like, we're doomed. You know, like, and, and everything that came after that, whether it was the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, that we're finally theoretically beginning to get out of, um, all of these things kind of manifested to me this sense of activism when I got to university. So it's, it's funny how those kind of things that, I've, that, that, that you are talking about, starting from, from at home with your mom, have kind of evolved into the role that you're playing now. What made you want to, because you're not just an activist, right? You're a human rights activist, you're a director, you're a novelist. What, what made you write? And, and, and what, what, for those who don't know your literature, what do you write about? So um, I write about social justice. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> go figure, um, right? And go figure. Up until this point, I've been writing for teenagers. I write young adult novels. Um, my first adult novel comes out this fall. Um, but what people know me for is my YA fiction, and it's usually rooted around social, social justice issues. Um, my first book, I'm Not Dying With You Tonight, I co-authored with a dear friend of mine, Dee Siegel, um, who is um, white presenting, but is an Israeli Jewish woman living here in America. And so... We wrote this novel, I'm Not Dying With You Tonight, that's told in a dual narrative. Um, there's two main characters, um, Lena and Campbell, and Lena is black and Campbell is white. And it's the story of two 17-year-old girls who survived the night together in race riots. And you get to see both of their perspectives. I like to say the book is more about perspective than it is about race. Mm. And then we have a new novel coming out we co-authored together called Why We Fly. Um, and Why We Fly is the story of two girls, the same setup, two girls, um, 17-year-old girls who are cheerleaders and decide to take a knee at their high school football game on a Friday night and the fallout in their town from that. And so the reason that I, you know, use my pen as well, if you will, to write about these stories is because I just feel like books are a wonderful entree into these conversations. Um, they're an amazing literature is an amazing tool um, to have these discussions, and it allowed me to enter into high schools and and kind of navigate this 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 difficult conversation about race relations in America with teenagers who are having these shared and lived experiences with us, but we are not by and large giving them the microphone and asking how they feel, what they're thinking, and what steps they think we, that we need to take for their future in particular, because they have more future than, you know, a middle-aged person like me. And so, you know, I just wanted to continue my work um, and utilizing my pen to do it, I thought was very important. I was very influenced and inspired um, by people like James Baldwin and Nikki Giovanni and Sonia Sanchez, Angela Davis, and um, 
Toni Morrison, people who utilize their, their writing gifts to continue the conversations that we need to have about social justice issues. And so I wanted to do the same. So I'm blessed that my publisher, I have two publishers, both of my publishers have always been very um, flexible and fair with me in terms of how I use my voice and what I choose to say. And it's been a, a blessing, um, particularly with the young adult stuff that I write. It's been a blessing to be able to go into these schools and have these conversations with young people and to go in with my friend Geely and, and model for people how to have these difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that reflects in my life in general. I get in trouble a lot because I have a lot of Black conservatives um, that I have relationships with that I talk to, which bugs people. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, how am I ever going to get anything done if I'm incapable of talking across the aisle? Yeah, it is deeply important to have that dialogue. And, and if you don't have that conversation, then then it kind of becomes an echo chamber where you're unable to move it forward because it can't just be the people who are committed to these issues. We need more people to be activated, more people to recognize and understand these issues and and really get a sense of, like why why are we fighting for the issues that we're fighting for? And and I think to that point, one one of the one of the things that I found interesting about the 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 kind of genesis of the book, um, your earlier book, was the relationship between the uprisings in Baltimore. This is particularly interesting to me because I'm actually moving to Baltimore mm-hmm. in like less than a month now. Um, so yeah, my, my mom is from Baltimore, so I know Baltimore well. You know, I used to go there every summer to, to visit my grandmother uh, before she died a few years ago. And my niece was in Baltimore uh, during the Freddie Gray uprisings in college. And I just, oh, wow. I remember thinking uh, throughout kind of my childhood being African-American and Muslim from New York City and seeing Amadou Diallo killed, seeing Abner Nwima assaulted by NYPD. Um, The number of things that have happened, whether it was Trayvon Martin, that throughout our lives, there's like these flashpoints of the Gina 6. I remember the protests on campus during the Gina 6. Like the number of flashpoints in, in my life, we're growing up with this continued sustained trauma and people who are our age, right? Like at every part of our life, whether you're middle aged or a millennial or a teenager, you know, the, the person who witnessed and bore witness to the public lynching of George Floyd um, was 17 years old. So I think it's really appropriate for trying to get that dialogue with young adults because there's a lot of continued sustained trauma that uh, is happening to those communities. And I think I'd be interested in hearing a little bit about what your what your activism was like uh, during during Baltimore and just what what are your thoughts that that kind of crept into the book and how did that develop itself? And then I definitely want to talk to you and spend some time really focusing on black girls. I re- we read Gilly and I, my partner, we read an article around the time that, uh, the unfortunate uh, murder of Freddie Gray. We read an article in the newspaper around Frederick Douglass High School there. And what happened was they had gotten wind that the police had gotten wind that um, there was going to be protest. So a bunch of people made a lot of not thoughtful decisions. Um, they, they closed schools early and told the kids to disperse and go home. But then they also shut down public transportation, mm-hmm. which is how a lot of those kids get home. Exactly. Um, and so kids weren't able to get on the bus 
kids were not able to like get on the bus and get home. And so a lot of kids kind of got trapped there around their school as the civil unrest began to grow. Um, and then there was this, this really quick story that was in the newspaper about a group of kids who got caught behind a police barricade. Kids who weren't participating in the unrest, kids who were not there to protest, just kids who were legitimately just trying to get home. And so, you know, the news, you know, they're, they're more interested in the like salacious versions of the story of rioting and looting and things like that. And so there was never a circle back to like what happened to those kids. And Geely and I are both writers and we're both moms. And so we were trying to process that. And we called the school, we did all this stuff, trying to figure out what happened to those kids. And we could never get an answer. And so we started writing this book. And even though we said it in Atlanta, we said it in Atlanta as, you know, we live here and we understand that landscape, but it was influenced and inspired by the notion of what about the people who in the midst of what I call superhero land are just standers by, but are still affected. Mm -hmm. um, these are often the people we're not having conversations to or about. Um, one of my favorite books of all time is a science fiction book called The Rest of Us Just Live Here. And it's it, 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 it's about the fact that like, we read all these amazing um, fantasy books, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings and all of these, you know, Children of Blood and Bone. We read all these things about these like super extraordinary people who step up and who are the chosen ones. But like, what about the people who just like live in the town as the aliens arrive? Mm. Or the people who just live there as wizards are flying around and destroying houses? Um, you know, um, like what about the people who are just like living in the village? Like what happens to them? And that's what this book was about. It was about the people who are living in the vi village as the saviors are trying to save the town. And so that's that was kind of our take on it is like, what about the people who just live in a city when civil unrest happens, who are not activists, who are not police officers, who are not any of that, who still have to navigate these waters um, as civil unrest engulfs their town? And so that's what sparked us to write this story. And then as civil unrest, you know, uh, the national spotlight moves on to something else the, the 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 story still continues for the people that are left behind right the story still goes on for the people who still have to grieve a death the people who still have to go to work the people who still have to board up their 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 shops Stores. the people who you know all all these realities don't just disappear because the media decides to go to another issue it actually still stays there no i think that's very powerful and compelling and your allusion to sci-fi kind of in some respects is connected to why I talked about this podcast is Afrofuturism, um, Afrofuturism as a genre. And I, I do work and research in the kind of intersection between climate and environmental justice, racial e equity and racial justice writ large and emerging technology. <clears throat> and um, you know, one of the things that I'm writing on is like, if science fiction inspired people to create the types of technologies then Afrofuturism ought to be inspiring people who are concerned about the state of black people to imagine black futures, right? Um, and, and and what that means technologically, what that means socially, what that means from a Pan-African perspective. And for me, it's very deeply rooted in a black feminist understanding of how we can't leave anyone behind. We, like, we, we, we have to be intersectional in how we think about that future. And, and 
to the point of making sure that we're uplifting the the ways that the ecosystems of oppression implicate black people and people of color generally there's a specific way that it affects black women and black girls that isn't really discussed enough and and kind of bypassed i'm i'm you know i, I think as i said in in earlier episodes or even earlier in this discussion the moments that we're hearing the verdict from the Chauvin trial, we we learn about Micaiah Bryant and, and her killing by Columbus Police Department. And months before that in Rochester, a nine-year-old, you know, was pepper sprayed and, and the police said, you know, you effectively telling her that she deserved it, a nine-year-old, right? Like I, I'm remembering the uh, scene from a pool party a few years ago where a black girl was thrown to the ground by, by police officers, right? Because quote unquote, she didn't comply, or the black girl who was, I think her name was Shakara in South Carolina, thrown by a school resource off- officer. This assault that's on black bodies, this policing of black bodies, uh, doesn't just happen to black boys and black men. I think it's definitely devastating when we see it, and it, and it has particular ways that it expresses itself, in particular narratives that are around it. But there's also a real specific way that these issues show up for black girls and black women in a way that's not recognized and discussed as effectively as it ought to be. And I, I want us to do justice to that today. I want us to actually begin to talk about the ways that black girls' bodies especially are adultified, right, are, are turned into whether uh, in a sexualized way or in a way that justifies violence, all types of violence inflicted upon them. And and how how in your... You know, writings and and your activism. Have you seen these issues show up? I'm so glad that you brought this up because that's one of the things that we don't get to talk about. Is you know the daily indignities that Black people suffer at the hand of police, particularly women of color, um, both Black and Native, um, yeah. and Latinx um, women as well, because we have to discuss the murders. Um, and we should because they're so atrocious, it doesn't leave a whole lot of room for the conversation about the daily indignities. I myself have been a victim of police brutality twice in my lifetime. One is recently as three years ago. I was, you know, falsely arrested and and jailed and then had to be let go, but was like both physically and verbally brutalized by the officers while I was in their custody. Um, my son, who's now 15, when he was about three weeks old, I had a police officer put his baby carrier um, in oncoming traffic um, as a threat to me. And so, you know, when you think about people like Shakitia Clemens in mm-hmm. Alabama, people forget about her, the young woman who was just asking for plastic silverware at a Waffle House and police officers wrestled her to the ground, exposing her breast um, and then leaving her sitting there in cuffs on the Waffle House floor with her breast exposed to everyone in the restaurant with no care or concern. And and Waffle House standing with the officers saying that the officers were correct. Yeah, I don't like the food because it's gross, but I definitely consciously haven't eaten at a Waffle House since then, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times we don't get into the abuse that happens to black and brown women under the police because we have our hands so full with the murders, but it is happening on a daily basis. I am having these conversations often with young women 
young women telling me how they were manhandled by a truancy officer, mm-hmm. um, by an officer at school. And it's funny, again, <laughs> I mean, you know, shameless plug, but the new novel that Healy and I have coming out in October, Why We Fly, this is one of the things that we address. We um, address how not only the security, but the authority at the school, you know, the principals and um, teachers and um, disciplinary officers. One of the things that is highlighted very heavily in our book, Why We Fly, is how the young woman who is African-American is handled very differently than the young lady um, who is, who is you know, white presenting in this story. And so, you know, to get into it, we'd even have to get, go past the police and talk about the school system. Yep. You know, our kids are disciplined at a much harsher rate they are suspended or expelled um for minor infractions that their white counterparts get in school detention for they are you know we've seen several videos circulating of how there is a white teacher present and a black student is being abused and no one is saying anything and then there is a physical altercation with a white student and suddenly there's involvement and, 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 you know, that's not even talking about all the black girls who are missing and like all these mm-hmm. other things um, that are going on in the name of violence towards young black women, young women of color. It's so, so much to unpack, Yusef. I don't even know where to begin. I mean, I, no, I think I think that's right. And I think I think it's important to, to leave people with some data points. Right. So there's a group in New York uh, called Girls for Gender Equity, and they, they have a state of black girls. Right. Report that came out recently, 2021. And, and one of the findings is that girls and uh, transgender nonconforming youth of color experience institutional violence in schools. Right. Like just. Yeah. Another finding, girls in TGNC youth of color experience interpersonal violence in school from adults, right? You know, mm-hmm. girls in TGNC youth of color uh, have visions for safe, holistic, welcoming, and affirming schools for our students. And really what this report espouses to do is create a school girls deserve. And what is at the core of this both daily indignities is this sense of like <clears throat> dehumanization of black Indigenous and Latinx girls, right? And the way that society has not just adultified black girls' bodies and justified various acts of violence, whether sexualized or, or physical violence. You know, to give a specific example, in Syracuse, New York, where I live, we, we had a police officer who, for decades, you know, sexually assaulted women. Um, and, 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 and a few years ago, uh, one, of the, one of the more known cases went public and he wasn't arrested, you know, for that assault, right? Like he was let go for for other reasons. And and it almost seemed like there's like no justice that can be given, right? And I don't even know that there can be justice because how do you how do you create justice from from such damaging harm? But th- there is this lack of both acknowledgement and recognition of the ways that uh, the state has continued to implicate black girls' bodies and, and Latinx communities and, uh, and indigenous communities. And, and I, think, I think you're right. I'm interested a little bit to get some more of a sneak preview into the book because I think though there's not as much time focused on these issues and we ought to be, there's equally not enough time spent on like issues beyond black trauma And there's more to us than our traumatic experiences. Certainly the trauma needs to be talked about because we can't get reconciliation or uh, rectify and remedy the harms that have been inflicted upon us if we don't actually talk about them. But there there also is a need to really have more than just a conversation about trauma and harm that are brought upon us. And I, I kind of hear 
a little bit in Wiley Fly, this sense of like, despite this, like we we have we endure. And so can you can you talk a little bit about the book? Is that, if that's if that's all right with you? Yeah. So um why we fly tells the story of of two girls, one black and one white. I we always say I'm not dying with you tonight is a story that brings two girls together. Um, Why We Fly is a story that rips two girls apart. Mm. Um, It's about two girls who have grown up in the suburbs, one black and one white, and have had a very similar shared lived experience up until they have to face um, racial injustice. And it's all about those that moment, particularly for girls um, of color who don't live in marginalized communities. In my first book, I intentionally chose the girl who I, you know, considered a hood girl. Mm. She was kind of like Liam Neeson because she grew up in the hood. She has a very specific mm-hmm. set of skills that, you know, mm-hmm. allows them um, to survive the night. And I intentionally did that because I said to myself, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a hood girl. I grew up on the South side of Chicago. Um, I think the only difference between me and some of the people I grew up with was that I was, I was given access to a lot of resources oh, that see. had a positive I, effect on my I life talk about and that caused all the me time. to have a very different outcome um, due to resource and programs and, and having a stable um, two-parent home. The combination, but I was still smack dab in the middle of the hood, exposed to gang violence, drug violence, all of that. But I had two solid parents and my parents made sure that that I was available for whatever resources were available to me in terms of education and opportunity and travel and all these things. And so I made Lena, and I'm not dying with you tonight, a hood girl, because I knew only a hood girl could survive that night. Mm. Only a hood girl would have the skill set to survive mm. that night. So Why We Fly is now set in the suburbs. And it's all about how when we when we raise our children with an unintentional color blindness, we leave them in a way ill-equipped to navigate the world when the world begins to try to navigate them in, in their skin, in their body. And so it is the story of this young girl who is unfamiliar with racism as we know it. Even though she is a Black girl, she has not had to come face to face with the world's acknowledgement of her blackness. Mm. And so she's forced to do that in this moment when she makes this decision um, to take a knee and she watches as she becomes the villain in the fallout. She watches as she becomes the thug, if you will, in the fallout. And this is a kid living in the suburbs who have, you know, it, it comes from a two parent home who has a sister who's at a, an, you know, an Ivy League school. She is the child of two members of the Divine Nine. Mm. It seems like, you know, theoretically life should be a crystal stair for her. And then the world reminds her that she's still black. Yeah. And that they still view her differently. And that the world still wakes up towards us for some reason every day and chooses violence. Emotional violence, physical violence, all types of violence. She's basically having to learn about racism on the fly because she's been given a false sense of security of that, you know, you do the right thing so these things don't affect you which isn't true. Well, I'm looking forward to it coming out, uh, Kimberly, because I think both having grown up in the Bronx and gone to middle school and high school in the suburbs, I'm intimately aware of the privilege that I've had because I've had those opportunities that made me want to stay involved in this work because I felt I had a responsibility and, and I still feel that I do. And I think the book speaks to me in that in that sense, but also I think it's terribly important for us to recognize that 
sometimes it doesn't really matter your position. The greatest indicator is is uh, is race, and it, it we we tell ourselves that that's not going to be the case, but I think society tells us something different. Um, yeah. I want to thank you for taking the time to be with me today here on Afro Futures. This is not the last time that I hope that we have a discussion. I'm, no, I'm, I'm not. so, so looking forward to working and building with you. And, and any way that we can collaborate and work together, I'm looking to do that. Again, I just, the, the way that we connected was having both gone viral. And, and I, I, I'm, I've tried um, very hard not to... Um, not to to center myself in in um, in that, but I, I appreciate your your recognition earlier on about that video and just the voice that I that I hope that it lended uh, to the movement work and and we got more work to do together. So any any last words you want to share us share with us? I would just say if you guys haven't seen Yusuf's video, go watch it. <laughs> but I'm sure you're listening to this, so you have. But also, I just I just want to say I appreciate you. I appreciate your work, I appreciate your ability to be like solution-based and hunt outcomes. Cause I think a lot of times, you know, people are looking to us to be saviors and we're not, mm. um, we're just people hunting the solution and hoping the solution can have a broad effect. And so I would say to anybody that anybody can get involved in this work in some way or another, you don't have to be a frontliner. You don't have to be as politically aware, but you know, you can utilize your art, you can utilize you know, a mentorship program. You can you can do some research and help to educate people and get rid of false narratives in the world. And there's so much work to be done. There's a place for everybody. And I hope that everyone is finding their place. Thank you. You have just listened to Yusuf and Kimberly Latrice Jones, an amazing, amazing, recognized and celebrated novelist, human rights activist, change agent um and, and and i think all around good good human being kimberly thank you so much for being here today thank you for having me and i'll be happy to come back anytime thank you afro futures is produced by waer public radio with producers joe lee and kevin Kloss. 